But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you once again and ask you to be here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the first sermon that I preached from this pulpit after I was hired here at St. Francis, I quoted Elwood Blues from the Blues Brothers, as I'm sure you remember from the film, if not from my sermon, though I trust you remember every word of that sermon, the Blues Brothers opened the sort of big final concert of the film at the Palace Hotel Ballroom with the song, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, this classic number, and Elwood introduces the song like this, please remember people that no matter who you are and what you do to live, thrive, and survive, there are still some things that make us all the same. You, me, them, everybody, everybody. Everybody needs somebody to love. In that sermon, I talked about how more than somebody to love, we really need somebody to love us and how that is sort of the universal human need to be loved, and how that need is met in Jesus Christ, who comes to love us even when we are unlovable. In fact, I said that that's exactly when Jesus Christ comes to us, when we are unlovable. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus comes to love us just when we don't deserve it. And this morning, I want to use that same Elwood Blues quote, to kick off the sermon, bringing me one step closer to my life and career goal of having a Blues Brothers quote in every single sermon that I preach. (laughs) Now, I know that uh, you won't think that it's very creative to use the same quote, but, you know, we have lots of years to go. (laughs) This morning, not so much on the, uh, the fact that we all need somebody to love, I want to focus on the list of people that Elwood says have this need, right? He says, there are still some things that make us all the same. You, me, and then he sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, them? And we all know who they are, right? We all have them in our lives. In the film, it's uh, John Candy and the cops sitting up in the room, but for us, them might be someone else whoever your them is. Um, We all have they. In uh, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, Uma Thurman and John Travolta are having dinner, and Travolta asks her about this rumor that he heard that her husband has had a man thrown off a balcony for giving her a foot massage. And they have this sort of quick, funny exchange where she says, is that a fact? And he says, no, it's not. It's just what I heard. And she says, who told you this? And he goes, they. And she says, they talk a lot, don't they? And he says, 
they certainly do. You see, they, them, we all have them and they in our lives. Whoever they are for you, sometimes it's the opposing political party, sometimes it's the opposite sex, sometimes it's your parents' generation or those pesky kids, but there's always a they. There's always a them, someone who's just not like you. There's a divide between us and them. And we read a bit about this divide in our letter to the Ephesians this morning. We read, remember that at one time you Gentiles, them, by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, i.e. the Jews, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at one time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Jews and Gentiles, the circumcision, the uncircumcision, us and them. Now, the Jews of this time were sort of the kings and queens of us and them, right? Of holy and unholy, of chosen and unchosen. You've heard the phrase, God's chosen people, right? There's sort of no more distinct us and them than that. We were chosen by God, you were not. Now, don't get me wrong, they were, in fact, God's chosen people. That name was given to them by God himself. You are my people, and I will be your God. But the Jews were really good at reminding people at how chosen they were, how it was us and them, how they were clean and everyone else was unclean, how they were righteous and everyone else was unrighteous, how they were set apart and everyone else wasn't. Now, I have a friend who spent a lot of time researching early Jewish writings from this period, and he came across and shared with me this really uh, neat example of this idea of us and them that was so common to the writings of the, of the time. There was a sort of tradition in Jewish, little Jewish literature of running down the history of sin in the world and laying it all at the feet of Gentile idolaters, right? We know God they don't, so the problems of the world are their fault. This is sort of a very common way that Jewish writers would write. And in one example, there's a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, which for you who have the Apocrypha in your Bibles, which is, we don't uh, hold to be canon, but which is there to make your scriptures a little bit thicker, make you seem a little bit smarter— um, that's in there, one of the apocryphal writings. If you look at this, you'll see a classic example of this sort of us and them idea in this early Hebrew writing. If you read the 13th and 14th chapters of the Wisdom of Solomon, you'll find that they are full of this sort of history of sin in the world, history of all the problems on earth, and the fault for these problems is laid at the feet of these people, these Gentiles, who don't know God, right? The writer says things like, they put their hope in dead things, and they speak to that which has no life, 
and they erred in the knowledge of God. They, they, they. And if you read on, though, into the 15th chapter of this letter, the wisdom of Solomon, you see that Israel felt themselves to be different. We, they say, will not sin, knowing that we are counted thine. And neither did the mischievous invention of men deceive us, right? You were deceived, we were not. You worship idols, we worship the real God. You and us, us and them. But you know what? You and I are not immune to this kind of thinking. We feel ourselves to be different too. We all have them in our lives, right? We may not be perfect, we'll happily admit, but at least we're better than them. We delight in pointing out the sins and shortcomings of others, not so much because we just enjoy bringing other people down, but because we hope to divert people's attention from our own foibles, our own shortcomings, our own sins. The problem isn't with us, it's with them. And we like to keep that dividing wall between us and them nice and strong. Unfortunately for us, the Bible says something quite different. That little section of the wisdom of Solomon that I talked about calls to mind a passage from the end of Romans chapter 1, where St. Paul, writing as an early, in sort of the early Jewish form, starts to write this history of sin in the world in much the same way that his readers would have been very familiar with. He says this starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. You heard it, right? They, they, they. Those unrighteous people, right? They sound like really bad news. They are worshiping all the wrong things. They, they, they. But just when those who would have been reading St. Paul's letter would have been settling in for some nice finger pointing about all the problems that they're responsible for in the world, Paul ruins everything. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You see what Paul has done here? He's set us up. All the they's 
which we like, have become use, which we hate. All of a sudden, we've been tricked. We thought for a second that the Bible was on our side, laying the blame for all the problems with them. But now we find that the Bible actually has a terrible message to proclaim. We are them. We are the ones who suppress the truth. We are the ones who do not honor God, who want all the honor for ourselves. We are the ones who, when things go well, don't give thanks to him. We are the foolish ones who exchange the glory of the immortal God for lower things like earthly success, status, satisfaction, and self-sufficiency. All these idols that we worship that only leave us feeling empty. We are them. Is there good news for us? Well, yes. We read it again in Ephesians. Jesus came, it says, and proclaimed peace to you who were far off, them, and peace to those who were near, us. Peace both for us and for them, because we are them. They are us. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. There is no us and them. We saw in Ephesians that the traditional marker between us and them was physical circumcision, right? Something that would happen on the outside of your self to your flesh. It was a really obvious thing. There were circumcised and there were uncircumcised. St. Paul says, listen, it's about your heart. It's about all the evil things you want to do. It's about all the things lower than God that you're worshiping. You're doing the same things as them. There is no more us and them, not because you're both equally good, but because you're both equally in need. This idea that both of us, us and them, now have access in one spirit to the Father is more incredible than it sounds. Don't read over this. Stay here for a second. Through Jesus, we, both us and them, have access in one spirit to the Father. We Unholy, sinful people have access to a holy God. In Jesus' final moments, his literal final moments, hanging on the cross, we read that he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and rocks were split. 
Jesus' spirit goes out from his body, and the first thing it does is go immediately to the temple and tear the dividing wall between holiness and unholiness, the dividing wall between God and man, the dividing wall between cleanliness and uncleanliness in two from top to bottom. There is now no separation. We have access to God. The holy of holies was kept separate to keep to keep it clean from all of us sinners. That separation in Christ is destroyed. We have access now to a holy God. We now have access to a God who, if he were to just judge us according to our behavior, should have nothing to do with us. That's why the veil was there. To keep us unclean rabble safe from the wrath of a holy God. But Jesus Christ has broken down the wall of sin that separates us from our Creator. Because of His sacrifice, we unholy people are welcomed in to be in fellowship with a holy God. Without Jesus... We could never get to God. But in Christ, God has come to you, to me, to them, and even to us. Amen.